Our Lord's Day lesson this afternoon is Lord's Day 48. It starts on page 561 of the Book of Praise. What is the second petition? Your kingdom come. That is, so rule us by your word and spirit that more and more we submit to you. Preserve and increase your church. Destroy the works of the devil. Every power that raises itself against you and every conspiracy against your holy word. Do all this until the fullness of your kingdom comes, wherein you shall be all in all. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you think about the things that you need, what comes to mind? Food, shelter, family, forgiveness. We could probably come up with quite a list. But would you put on that list the kingdom of God? When Christ taught us the Lord's Prayer, he introduced it with our needs in mind. He said, your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Now we can understand that we need daily bread, forgiveness, deliverance from evil. But in what way do we need his kingdom to come? What's so essential to this kingdom that Christ includes it in his model prayer? He certainly doesn't intend it to be an empty request. He said that's how the Gentiles prayed, heaping up empty requests. No, the request for God's kingdom to come is full. Full of meaning, full of things we ought to pray for full of things that we need. Christ also taught us that God rewards humble prayers, prayers that are prayed for his sake alone and not for the sake of others. So if we ask God for his kingdom to come, how do we expect him to reward that prayer? What is this kingdom? How do we find it? Where did it come from? Where is it going? With these questions in mind, I preach to you the meaning of the second petition as we find it in Lord's Day 48. I'll do so with the following theme and points. Christ teaches us to seek the kingdom that rules the world. First, the kingdom enters the world. Second, the kingdom overthrows the world. So first, the kingdom enters the world. Now the second petition, your kingdom come is a new kind of prayer in Scripture. The Old Testament contains many prayers, most notably the book of Psalms. But nowhere in all of these prayers do we find the request for God's kingdom to come. Now, the idea of a kingdom dominates the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy already, while Israel was in the desert, Moses anticipated that Israel would one day have a king. And centuries later, God's people reached the height of their earthly glory under the kings. And when that system led Israel astray and into exile, the prophets predicted a future king. So there are many prayers throughout the Old Testament concerning the kingdom and the king. And these prayers do often refer to God and call God the king. But this is always done with the kingdom of Israel in mind. Not a separate kingdom that was God's alone. In fact, the phrase, 
kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven doesn't appear anywhere in the Old Testament. For the Israelites, any concept of kingdom was bound up with the land of Israel, with the king of Israel. But there is one place in the Old Testament that points ahead to a new kind of kingdom, one that isn't connected with Israel. In Daniel 2, we saw that King Nebuchadnezzar sees in a dream a future kingdom that will destroy all the others. There's nothing to suggest that this will be a restored kingdom of Israel. But whatever this kingdom is, it will be greater than all the greatest powers in the world, and it will never end. So at the time of Christ, there was certainly an idea among the Jews that a future kingdom was coming. And considering what the book of Daniel revealed about that kingdom, it would have been something that the Jews would have fervently hoped for. So it's no surprise that the simple message of John the Baptist resonated with the Jewish people. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Matthew 3 verse 5 tells us that in response to this message, Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. John the Baptist drew huge crowds and gained many disciples just from preaching the kingdom. Now this command to repent itself shows us something about this kingdom. Not just anyone was fit for this kingdom. In fact, not just any Israelite was fit for this kingdom. John was preaching to Israelites and commanding them to prepare for the arrival of this kingdom. Being an Israelite was itself not enough. You had to prepare for the kingdom through repentance and through baptism. You confessed your sins, you were washed with water, and only then were you ready. Now, this already showed God's people that this kingdom was going to be unique. When Christ began his ministry, he began it with the same message as John the Baptist, to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But he filled out the picture in far more detail to demonstrate that this kingdom was truly like no other earthly kingdom. He taught that although the kingdom was at hand, that it was near, that it wasn't obvious to all. It was something that you actually had to seek. And you wouldn't find it by seeking half-heartedly, but only by seeking it at the expense of everything else. Christ understood that we would spend our days trying to provide for our basic needs, that our lives would be governed by finding food to eat, clothes to wear, practical things. But he commands us to seek, before all that, this new kingdom. You prepare for this kingdom with repentance. And then you seek it more seriously than you seek even what you need to live. And Jesus compared the kingdom of heaven to a treasure that a man finds in a field and to a merchant who finds a great pearl. In both those stories, the men find something more valuable than anything else in their lives. And they make the logical choice to acquire that thing. And through these teachings, Christ was changing the expectations of his followers. 
they expected him to sit on an earthly throne and rule a kingdom that had political boundaries. It would be a kingdom with its own customs, a kingdom that you could find on a map. But Christ taught a different kingdom. You don't prepare for this kingdom by learning a different language and learning how to do things the way people do them in another country. And you don't seek this kingdom by looking at a map or by following any kind of road. You prepare for this kingdom by turning away from sin. And you seek this kingdom on your knees in prayer. But the temptation to establish an earthly kingdom is a strong temptation. Throughout history, people have been drawn toward mass movements and political systems that promised a human utopia. Communism and fascism both taught that if you seek first the party or the state, then everything else would be added unto you. Even the church fell at times to the temptation that her security was to be found in human governments, or that the kingdom of God could somehow be established in a political state. And those same temptations exist in our own country, in our own time. The temptation to believe that all the wrongs that we encounter in life can be fixed by better laws and better regulations. The temptation to believe that we can create some degree of perfection just by signing the right petitions and donating to the right causes. And that's not to speak against those things per se, but to speak against the human impulse to create a perfect kingdom on earth. Because the way that Christ spoke about the kingdom of God tells us something about people. What kind of people need to be told to repent? People who are imperfect. What kind of people need to be told to seek first the kingdom before they can seek anything else? People who are unable to create their own security. The way that Christ speaks about the kingdom shows us that people are broken creatures who ultimately cannot take care of themselves. And if people are flawed like that, then we have to recognize that we will always live in a flawed world. We will never legislate evil out of the heart of man. And that's why we need something radically new. Something not governed by the worn-out laws of this world. The Jews in Jesus' time had difficulty understanding this. They wanted a kingdom that was tied to a particular place and a particular people group. A kingdom that was of this world. But the truth is that this kingdom is not tied to a place, but to a person. And his kingdom is not of this world. That may not be what we naturally want, but it is what we need. Jesus said to Pilate that if his kingdom were like all the rest, then his disciples would be fighting. And it's also true that if his kingdom were like all the rest, then killing him would put an end to his kingdom. If you killed the king, you won the kingdom. But in Christ's case, it was the opposite. Killing the king ensured that the kingdom could never fall into enemy hands. And not just for the time being, but forever. 
This is the kind of kingdom that we really need. And this is the kind of kingdom that Jesus won for the world. This is the kind of kingdom worth seeking above all else. This is the kind of kingdom worth spending a lifetime preparing for. A kingdom where those who are guilty can walk free through repentance. A kingdom that isn't miles away, but that is one humble prayer away. And a kingdom whose security and prosperity isn't tied to the stock market or natural resources or nuclear arsenals. It's a kingdom that is above all that. A kingdom tied to a human being who sits on the throne of Almighty God. And because this kingdom is not subject to the laws of this world, it may overthrow this world without opposition. This is our second point. When we pray the second petition... We pray for the kingdom to come. But if the kingdom came with Christ, why do we still pray for it to come? Well, we can look a little bit more at Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel 2. There we read that the stone shatters the statue and then becomes a great mountain that fills the whole earth. The stone shatters the statue one time, which means that the kingdom is established one time and from there grows through the whole world. So when Christ came 2,000 years ago, that, shatter, that statue was shattered. In that sense, Christ's kingdom has come. But when we pray for the kingdom to come, we're praying for that stone to become a mountain that fills the whole earth. And the Catechism shows us three ways that this will happen. It gives us three things to pray for. The first thing we pray for is that God would so rule us by his word and spirit that more and more we submit to him. So if you think about Daniel's vision and the kingdoms that were shattered, in those kingdoms, the kings would rule through fear and cruelty and conquest. It was with armies and intimidation that those kings held on to their power. And that wasn't only true of those four kingdoms, but of all human kingdoms. Those four kingdoms represented human power in general. And those kingdoms were shattered violently by a stone. Yet the kingdom of Christ didn't come about through violence. When Jesus said to Pilate that his followers didn't fight, he showed that it wasn't his intention at all, to establish another human kingdom governed by the human power of violence. Nor did Christianity later spread through the Roman Empire, through the feet of iron and clay, through violence. The rock that shattered the statue in Daniel's vision represented a new kind of power. And this new kind of power was entirely superior to the power that that statue represented. So how did Christ establish his kingdom? And how did that kingdom grow through the Roman Empire? Through the power of God's word and through the power of God's spirit. And when we ask God to rule us 
by that word and spirit, then we are asking God to rule us by that new kind of power. The power that doesn't come from this world. The power that breaks the power of this world. Is it this power that governs your life? The world is full of voices competing for your attention. Voices that tell you what is meaningful in life. Voices that tell you what your life should look like. But the voice of our shepherd is the only voice that matters. And he promises that a life governed by his power will be a life of love and joy and peace. Those are things that you can't find if your life is governed by your desires, by your ambition, by all the things that can control your life aside from Christ. The Catechism teaches us to pray that more and more we should submit to the power of word and spirit, that our lives would be governed by the fruits of the spirit. But when we pray for God's kingdom to come, We don't just pray that for our own lives. Because it certainly doesn't appear to the average person today that the kingdom of God has any lasting power. The average person in our culture would probably say that the kingdom of God, whatever it means to them, is on its way out. Christianity is becoming irrelevant. So when we look for the fullness of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, we ask that the power of word and spirit would more and more govern the lives of everyone around us. We ask that people would encounter the truth of the word and see the works of the spirit in the lives of the saints. We ask that whatever it is that governs their lives would be shown to be false, that they would be confronted by the truth and would believe the truth, that more and more the world itself would submit to Christ's word and Christ's spirit. The second thing the Catechism mentions is the destruction of the works of the devil and all conspiracies against God's word. To pray for God's kingdom to come is to pray that the works of the devil would fade from the world. Since the Garden of Eden, there has been enmity between God's people and the devil. And the devil has always waged his war by means of the power of this world. When he tempted Jesus, he tempted him by offering the kingdoms of this world. He offered him the unshattered statue as his prize. The devil didn't want a world that was no longer governed by the kingdoms of war and greed and fear and ambition. The devil still has in mind that old, broken statue. In our day, there are many authorities that try to set themselves up against God's kingdom. Politicians, scientists, the media, they all conspire to set some false kingdom back up. They teach you to trust human reason and human desires rather than to place your trust outside of yourself. And this is the devil's attempt to piece together the shattered statue. To have you ignore the new and eternal kingdom and keep your attention on the old, broken one. 
And you can see that the devil's kingdom is fully opposed to God's kingdom. On the one hand, the devil will do anything to keep you from paying attention to the rock that shattered the statue. But on the other hand, to seek first, seek first God's kingdom is to give up everything. Like the merchant gave up everything for that pearl. If he had kept back anything for himself, he wouldn't have had enough for that pearl. So we either completely ignore God's kingdom or we give everything to it. And we ought to remember what Christ said about the devil. He said to the Pharisees in John 8, You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So when Scripture speaks of the works of the devil, at root, those works are lies. They have no substance to them. There's no power in believing them. When the devil distracts you from God's kingdom and tries to impress you with human authorities, he's lying. There's nothing there. You won't find the truth of your existence in a telescope. You won't find your security by voting for the right political party. And you certainly won't find freedom in the ways of life portrayed by the media. Scripture also tells us something interesting in this regard. In 1 John, we read that the reason Jesus came was to destroy the works of the devil. But in the Gospel of John, Jesus says that the reason that he came was to bear witness to the truth. So destroying the works of the devil and bearing witness to the truth are one and the same action. And this one action is the whole meaning behind Jesus coming into the world, behind Jesus on the cross. For if the devil used human kingdoms for his own ends, there was only one kingdom that he ruled over personally, and that was the kingdom of death. Death was the devil's great work, the price we paid for believing the devil's great lie. But Jesus shattered that kingdom too, the kingdom that every human being lives in. Jesus, who called himself the truth, paid the price of death without ever believing a single one of the devil's lies. For Christ, destroying the works of the devil and bearing witness to the truth were one and the same action. So when you pray for the kingdom of God to come, you're praying for an increased witness to the truth. You're praying that in your own life, you would come to know and love that truth more and more. That despite what the truth costs you, whether that's friendships or jobs or your reputation, that you would still treasure the truth above all else. And again, you're praying for this love of truth to spread throughout the world. That people would see the many lies that govern their lives. That they would reject those lies and despise the power behind those lies. 
You're praying that they too would sell everything to buy that precious pearl of truth. And the third thing the catechism mentions is that all this should be done until the fullness of the kingdom comes, wherein Christ will be all in all. People often wonder what the world is coming to, what the future of the human race is going to be, what it's going to look like. Well, Paul writes the following packed statement in Ephesians 1, verses 9 and 10. He writes, God is making known to us the mystery of his will. According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So in Christ, we see God's plan for what Paul calls the fullness of time. And the fullness of time is more than just the end of time. It refers to the purpose of time. The reason why time keeps going why we get old, why our children grow up. If you want to know what the world is coming to, God has made his plan known in the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. And Paul says that plan is a plan to unite all things in Christ. So the eternal kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar's dream doesn't simply destroy It doesn't just shatter the human powers and leave a mess. That statue was held together for the glory of man, but the stone grows for the glory of God. And this means that everything under the sun, everything ever created, will be put into God's service. When we say that everything will be united to Christ, we say that everything will be given the life and the dignity that God intended for it. This is true of nature, of our bodies, our souls, our relationships, our hobbies. God's plan for time is to unite all these things with Christ so that they can be enjoyed perfectly. Now we already see this in Christ himself. In his birth, we see the unity of God and man. In his death and resurrection, we see the unity of holiness and mercy. And in his ascension, we see the unity of heaven and earth. It's ultimately this unity that we pray for when we pray for the kingdom to come. When we pray that we would be governed by word and spirit. And when we pray that the lies of the devil would lose their force, we are praying that all things would come together in Christ. We're praying that every part of our lives would come together for one purpose, for Christ's glory. We're praying that everything that happens in the world would point everyone to one Savior, that the world would be united in worship of Christ. It's only when we see those things come true that we will see God as he is, that the kingdom of God will have come in its fullness. Our Father knows what we need before we ask it in prayer. He knows that we desperately need this kingdom to come, that the world needs this kingdom to come. 
This kingdom that is only a prayer away, whose borders can only be crossed through repentance. The kingdom governed not by the king's armies, but by the king's word and by his spirit. A kingdom of truth and life, a kingdom that fills the future with glory. Our Father also rewards every prayer prayed in secret, prayed sincerely. And if we seek this kingdom in prayer, our Father will reward us. Amen.